Welcome to the Sustain UW podcast, a place for sustainability conversation, expert interviews, and news hosted by student interns from the UW-Madison Office of Sustainability. We want to know, what's up with sustainability and where should we go from here? Before we dive into today's episode, we want to remind you that the opinions expressed on this show do not reflect the views of the Office of Sustainability, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. Now, let's get into today's show. Hello, and welcome to the Sustain UW podcast, and I'm your host, Kylie Shedler. This year, the Office of Sustainability hosted the second annual Sustainability Writing Awards, for which students submitted written pieces on the topic of resolutions. Writers were asked to ponder what resolution really means, who gets to make resolutions, how we can learn from the resolve of nature, and what makes a resolution truly sustainable. Applicants to the Writing Awards were able to take this theme any direction they desired, leading to a wonderful mixture of creatively unique pieces. After an anonymous review by a panel of judges, three student winners were chosen. They received scholarship prizes, and their essays were promoted at the second annual Sustainability Symposium, which took place at the end of October. The winners were Haley Sewell, who reminisced on snow as a child, Scott Hirschberger, who crafted a beautiful dialogue between himself, a tree, and a bird, and Madeline Anderson, who celebrated the rusty-patched bumblebee's escape from extinction. Today, we're joined by these winners who spoke to me about what inspired their pieces and what we can do to become resolute. Uh, Hi, yeah, I'm Haley Sewell. I'm a junior here at UW studying English and Environmental Studies with a sustainability certificate. Can you read us a bit of your work? During the winter of 2007 to 2008, there was a total snowfall of more than 100 inches in the city of Madison. The biggest storm occurred just before the turn of the new year. I don't recall the total inch count. I was only five. But it was the first snowfall I can remember. There was so much snow that neither of my parents went to work. My brothers and I went out every hour to shovel the drive, to not let it build up too much. It was this snowfall, that cold blanket of clouds, which birthed the poet from its frost. Layers of ice kissed the flower beds of dead brush, tucking it in like a child ready for bed. It was this storm that taught me a love for the outdoors, even in nature's harshest storms. And it was this storm that I decided to never leave the snow. I would stop time and live there forever. Today, I often find myself thinking of the lack of these magical days. Being an adult, isn't very magical. It feels like there's less snow and the winters are shorter. There has been less magic, more conflict, politics, violence. I wonder if the child sitting in my elementary school desk will ever know about a snow day. A day when feet of snow pile up and hold them up inside their home. One day they would smell cinnamon, hot cocoa, and sticky banana muffins made by their nana. Will they find the snow as magical as I did? I think of this when the fresh blankets fall, when the snow comes to melt, and soon it is spring. All right, thank you for reading that. So the topic for this year's Sustainability Writing Awards was resolutions. When you read that topic, what made you think of snow, and how did you connect resolutions with snow? Yeah, I immediately thought of like New Year's resolutions and kind of making promises that you know you never really keep um, as the year progresses 
and kind of tying that to climate change and the climate crisis, like corporations making promises to go green and being net zero by 2020 when 2020 came and went and that never happened. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because the next thing I was going to ask you about was the resolution. So a few that you wrote for yourself in the essay were, you know, to use less single-use plastics, cut out dairy, and also believe in the politicians that we elect into office. And I was wondering why you chose these resolutions to write about in your piece. I think they were personal to me, but also very applicable to probably most people. Um, you don't need to be like an environmentalist to maybe want to produce less waste as a human um, because we do that a lot. And I think the politicians was also very relevant to the topic um, and something that isn't anyone's New Year's resolution ever, but it's like necessary to trusting in your elected officials to push policy on corporations and governments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I really like that you pointed out the difference between personal resolutions and also corporate resolutions, like you mentioned, corporations promising to go green by 2020 and then it not happening. And in your eyes, who do you think holds the blame for a lot of the issues that we're seeing in our environment today? And who do you think holds a responsibility to fix it? I think it is easy to point the finger at corporations because they obviously are the ones doing the most harm to the environment. But like at the end of it, it is people supporting corporations. And, you know, it's convenient. We live in a very convenient world, like the modern day. It's easier to just keep doing what we're doing than it is to cut out things that are harmful to the environment and kind of put pressure on corporations. Yeah, that's very well said. I agree. Um, there's a balance between individual action and then also corporate responsibility. And I like that you highlighted that in the in the essay. OK, and I also wanted to read one quote that you wrote, and it was, I imagine what this campus could look like in 175 years when humanity is gone and this university, twice as old as it is now, stands still. Wildlife that could survive in the heat living in Bascom Hall, State Street desolate and covered in weeds. The day will come and night will fall. Then you also later ended the essay with corporations and politicians are washing our bodies with gasoline and we are pushing ourselves closer and closer towards a flame. And although not everyone will burn at the same rate, there is no way to escape the mercilessness of nature. And these two just really stood out to me because like the way that you you see nature persevering with and then it's the question is, will humans still be there in the future? And this like image that nature is punishing us for what we've done to it, I it just really stood out to me. And I was wondering, you know, what inspired that? It does make me wonder, like in the future, if like things kind of go south for humanity, which kind of species will make it through? Because I'm sure it's like mass extinction that scientists like warn against is not limited to humans, but writing that, I wanted to kind of take the lens away from like a human centric, like if kind of the climate crisis were to go the way that it's kind of leaning towards, mm -hmm. um, humanity will be the one to suffer, which isn't probably how it's actually going to happen because of like technology and 
I'm sure once we get to a certain point, humans are just going to like wipe off the face of the earth. But putting that environmental fear into people um, to maybe think about, oh, this this university that we're celebrating for the 175th year this year is going to sit here 200 years from now. But our people. So mm -hmm. kind of bringing that question up. Yeah. Yeah, I was definitely moved when I read it. And like, I'm someone who is involved in environmentalism. So I can't even imagine how someone who isn't felt reading that because, I mean, I if I were them, I'd be shocked and I would probably be rethinking everything I've done. So that description of like Bascom Hall and State Street being desolate and then nature taking over. The juxtaposition with that and the beginning of your essay when you were describing the innocent like childhood fascination with snow, that change in perspective is very drastic. You know, going from, you know, just loving snow and being happy with how nature is to seeing it as nature will persevere and we might not be here. How does that change in perspective influence you now and what motivates you to keep pushing forward even if our future does end in flames? Um, it's definitely motivating to think back to how magical like that sort of time in my life felt um, and how I do think that if we really like put everything we have into solving all the mistakes we've made, we could get back to a point where sort of the equilibrium of nature and life and there would be less suffering of people and like beyond human species around the world. Yeah, I think it's just motivating to think that we could get back there and that it doesn't need to be the path that we're heading. We don't need to have a like desolate State Street, vines growing on build buildings, animals kind of taking over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I know you're not an expert, but in your opinion, what do you think needs to be done to move us away from heading towards that future? Um, there needs to be a lot of change in politics and also like the politics of corporations. I think there needs to be a movement towards very strict environmental regulations around the world because companies that have signed like Paris Agreement and the Kyoto Protocol that's a lot of countries and nations that have done that, but a lot of the large contributors to climate change like the U.S. haven't, and really pushing those countries who are causing the most damage towards that path that a lot of other nations and states are on. What do you think individuals can do to push like our country to make those changes? Talk to your representatives. Um, <laughs> And I think in like youth, I think there's a big movement towards solving the climate crisis. And there's a lot of passion because that's our future that we're hoping to save. Also educating others, especially like older generations who have the power in office and in these corporations to really motivate them to also want to change things for future generations, even if it's not in their lifetime. Well, thank you for coming on to the podcast. It was great being able to dive into your piece a little bit more and hear about background of why you wrote this piece and what we can possibly do to steer our, our future away from ending up in flames. So thank you. 
Next up, we have Scott Hirschberger, who is a second year graduate student studying life science communication. Thank you for coming in today, Scott. Can you give us some background information about yourself? Sure. So I did my undergrad in math and physics, and since then have kind of come on a bit of a career journey. I am interested in science communication, which I consider to be connecting scientists and the public on scientific issues that matter to society. And I'm particularly interested in climate change and public engagement on environmental issues. So I've been a science writer at a few different places, um, Scientific American and the American Mathematical Society um, before I started grad school. And now I'm doing my master's here at UW in life sciences communication. So when I read your essay, it was reminiscent of poetry to me, the, the way that you wrote it and the alternating dialogue and the conversation between the science communicator, the tree and the bird. Why did you choose to use this format for the writing awards? So when I was thinking about what resolutions for the climate crisis mean to me, I was thinking a lot about the other living creatures around me, not just humans and how we operate on very different timescales. And so I thought it would be interesting to write about a tree and a bird and me and how we each are experiencing climate change. And pretty quickly, I decided to talk about the honey locust tree that sits right outside my living room window. I, I see it every day. And I also decided to talk about the eastern wood peewee who nested in a tree, not the same tree, but a different tree near my window. And I heard him singing most of the summer. And at first I was thinking of having a section about the tree followed by a section about the bird and then a section about me. But as I started working on it, I realized that I really wanted to bring these three perspectives in conversation with each other. And so that's where the idea of interspersing them came from. And then once I had that, I wanted to really put myself even more in the perspective of the bird and the tree. And so that's why I decided to write all of those sections in first person as if they are truly being narrated by a tree and by the bird. From there, the poetic approach just kind of seemed like the right fit because I had these trio of voices. I was presenting it on the page in a kind of braided, intertwined way. And I felt like using those kind of poetic devices and poetic language would be an effective way to highlight the similarities and differences between the perspectives of the three speakers. Do you mind reading a few lines from the perspective of the honey locust tree? Sure. I inhale your exhalation and exhale your inhalation, but your kind has artificially exhaled far beyond your numbers. My leaves cannot keep up with your machines, even if I transform light and air into life for a century or longer. Yet that does not make my effort futile. I am not alone. I contain multitudes, and the multitude contains me. My leaves contain leaves, a community on every branch. And without each individual tree, there would be no forest. I contribute to a larger endeavor, together with the oaks on the other side of the yard, the elms where the eastern wood peewee nests in the summer, the figs where he spends the winter. We all take care of the earth. We all take care of you. I would also love to hear what you wrote from the perspective of the Eastern Wood Peewee. I sing for others of my kind, not for you. Through my song, I resolve to find a partner and create a fledgling legacy that will outlive me. 
But that doesn't mean that my voice matters only to potential partners and rivals. It matters to you, too. My song brings you joy, even though to your ears I sound identical to other Eastern Wood Peewees. My feathered fellows hear the idiosyncrasies, and each of our voices is necessary to connect the generations. And finally, could you read a little bit of what you said back to the tree and the bird? And finally, I thank you both for your most important lesson. Hope is passive. The two of you are not. You reveal that balance will come only through action, but no single action is suitable for everyone. If you, honey locust, absorbed insects instead of light, or if you, eastern wood peewee, subsisted on light instead of insects, the world would fall even further out of balance. Just as you have found your niches, I will find mine. May all inhabitants of our world resolve to use our strengths to each fill a climate action niche. Together, we can build a future in which all will thrive, bird and tree, land and sea, you and me. Thank you for that, Scott. Part of the excerpt that you read was, I sing for others of my kind, not for you. And through this, you admit that the bird and the tree exist for themselves and not for the benefit of humans. Um, Yet I thought it was interesting that your essay gives voice to the birds and the tree through an unavoidable human perspective. I think you approached this very well. You didn't talk for the species, but instead you try to understand them as best as you can. And I was wondering if you think we will ever be able to truly understand other species despite the obvious language barrier. Oh, you know, I don't think we can understand other species at the same level that they understand each other. You know, I think there's a certain type of understanding that one Eastern wood peewee can have for another that I can never have for an Eastern wood peewee, for example. But I do think that in today's society, we often are just so removed from the rest of nature that we lose out on the sorts of meaningful understandings and relationships that we could have. And many people do have, and historically, many people did have with the world around us. So part of what I was trying to do with this essay was heal that relationship for me personally, to really encourage myself to think deeply about the experiences of these other beings around us and try to best understand as well as I can what they're experiencing. Now, it's never going to be a complete understanding, but we also never have a complete understanding of what other humans are experiencing. You know, we can imagine, we can infer things based on our conversations with each other, but at the end of the day, the only experience we know is our own. And it's incumbent upon us to do as much as we can to really empathize with others, both humans and non-humans. And I think that's so important, not just for dealing with climate change, but for building a better future writ large. What do you think the conversation would be like if the human wasn't part of it? Do you think it would fall apart or do you think that nature would thrive without humans? So, you know, I think this is really a place where we need to turn to the wisdom of indigenous communities in North America and around the world. I am not indigenous myself, and I've been learning more from indigenous people lately that often in Western society, we think of ourselves as separate from nature, but that's just fundamentally not true. When we think about the ways that ecosystems have found a balance over the millennia, in many, many places, 
those have included humans as an integral component. So for example, you think about a lot of the recent discussions around how to deal with fire across the country, you know, in the, in the uh, Northwest, in California, indigenous peoples managed those landscapes for fire. Those landscapes thrived with humans as an essential part. And so this idea of some sort of pristine wilderness that humans came in and corrupted and ruined is just fundamentally flawed. And I think it's important for us to relearn that wisdom and find the new ways in the 21st century for us to really engage in productive relationships with the natural world. Because one of the messages of my essay is that we impact our surroundings in more ways than we might realize, and our surroundings impact us. And of course, with things like carbon emissions, that impact becomes global. But my interest is in large part on local relationships and interactions, which I think often get overlooked now that we have such an interconnected global society. And so I am trying myself to build a deeper sense of place and a deeper understanding of how I personally fit in to Madison, the community where I live, both human and non-human. And with my essay, that's something that I'm hoping to encourage others to, to reflect on as well. Okay, so you mentioned that we have a greater impact on our surroundings than we really think. What do you think we can do to continue the conversation between us and non-humans or you and the bird and the tree instead of damaging the relationships? For me, it all starts with paying attention. And that's actually something I've been writing about in another piece I'm working on. It's so easy to go about our daily lives just going from point A to point B, from inside one space to inside another human space, and really forget to notice what's around us in the rest of the natural world. I think in order to begin to understand the non-human beings we share our lives with, we need to pay attention to them. And from that attention, we can start to understand their perspectives. We can start to understand what they contribute to the ecosystem. And that more holistic understanding, I think, generates empathy and it generates a desire to do right by all of our relatives. And it encourages a certain level of humility because we as humans do not know everything. We will never know everything. And we need to remember that and know that we live fundamentally in community with each other and with the rest of the natural world around us. And only through that entire community can we truly make a difference. That was very well said. So this year's Writing Awards theme was resolutions. And I was wondering, when you read the theme of the year, what made you think of this conversation between the bird and the tree and yourself? Well, there are a couple different ways to think about resolutions, which I think is one of the, the wonderful things about that being the theme of the contest. It allows a variety of interpretations. And the first definition that I was thinking about was very different from the definition I ended up drawing upon. At first, I was thinking about resolution as an ending. And so I started imagining, you know, what does the end of the climate crisis look like to me? And what does it look like to a tree who's going to outlive me? And what does it look like to a bird who's only going to live for a handful of years? And I was having some interesting thoughts about that, but nothing that was really compelling me to write. And then 
as I reflected on the definition of resolution in terms of a desire to do something, a commitment to do something, I realized I had a lot more to say about that because my entire career path right now is dedicated to doing my small little part to address climate change through a communications lens. And so I realized I could write about that and bring that into conversation with the different resolutions that the bird and the tree have. I like that you switched the lens of like resolution as a ending. I like to more think of it as a beginning because you think about what you need to do to achieve a goal, whether it be New Year's resolutions, like you think about what you want to achieve by the end of the year. I really like that you brought that into this essay. If you had to pick one resolution you'd like a listener of this podcast or a reader of your essay to walk away with, what would you want it to be? I would like everyone to make a resolution to do their small part, emphasis on the small, because climate change is a global crisis and none of us can do it all. And trying to do it all is just a recipe for us to get overwhelmed and give up. But each one of us has a certain set of skills and talents and beliefs and interests and relationships and communities that we are a part of. And each one of us can draw on that unique intersection to make a difference in a small way. And if we all do that, then together we will truly build a better future in light of the climate crisis and all the other challenges that we face as a society. And I think part of that, too, is just talking about climate change. You know, recent polling showed that about two thirds of Americans rarely or never discuss climate change with family and friends. And one of the consequences of that is that we don't realize how many other people are worried about climate change, how many people care about it, and how many people support pro-climate policies. The exact percentages vary depending on the policy that you ask about, but for a lot of pro-climate policies, the level of support is two-thirds or higher. So climate action is what the majority of people want to have happen. We just all have to make our voices heard and move the needle. Thank you. That was very inspiring. It is comforting to know that there are other people out there who are worried about the same thing. Because like you said, you know, it's easy to, to think you're the only one out there and it's comforting to find community. Yeah. Well, thank you, Scott, for coming in today and talking with me about your piece and giving us insight about what inspired writing a conversation between a bird, a tree and yourself. And I know I'll walk away from this conversation today thinking about how we are connected with nature instead of being separate from nature and how we can continue the conversation between humans and nature. I thank you for that. Thanks, Kylie. It's been great talking with you. Last but certainly not least, we will talk with Madeline Anderson, a second-year undergraduate studying life science communication and environmental studies. Could you introduce yourself? Thank you. Yeah, so my name is Madeline Anderson. My pronouns are they, she, and as you said, I'm studying life science communication and environmental studies um, at Madison, but I'm originally from Minnesota in a little nature town. So you wrote about the rusty patch bumblebee. Do you mind reading a paragraph from your piece today? Yes, definitely. Where were you on August 18th, 2023? Did you feel the air shift? Did you hear your heart still? Did you let your hands cease to shake? 
I did not. I was lying under the Minnesota sun, not close enough to sense the resolution. But somewhere in Wisconsin, tucked away in a quaint backyard along the river, a rusty patched bumblebee let out a sigh of relief. All right. So for listeners of the podcast who haven't read your essay yet, what is the story that you're telling? Yeah. So I'm looking at resolution through the lens of a very small insect called the rusty patched bumblebee, which, if you're not familiar, is a species that was once really abundant in Wisconsin and is now endangered, sadly. But over this past summer, there was a sighting of a nest, which is a really big deal for researchers because they've been working very hard to have those environments for them and start bringing them back. So I really dove into the details of their biology and what it's like to find them again and how that ties into the sense of resolution and why the little things matter. Like you mentioned, the rusty patch bumblebee is endangered. I was wondering why you did decide to write about the rusty patch bumblebee, because there are unfortunately so many endangered species that we have in our country right now that you could have potentially written about. Definitely. Yeah. So personally, I just have a fascination with insects. I think they are so critical in ecosystems, yet physically they're so small. And I think that says a lot just about the power of the little things. And also, it's a species that's local to Wisconsin, and I know a lot of people in this area um, are really passionate about, and then there's a lot of people who don't even know about it, and they're really critical to a lot of our biodiversity. So I thought that would be an interesting kind of like unique hitting home take for them. I do have to admit, I didn't yeah. know about the recipe <laughs> will be. Um, and like, I do like bees, but I don't know specifics. So it was very interesting to read about this because I didn't even know. One thing you wrote in your essay that really stood out to me was resolution means returning to the earth, to ourselves and our connection. This one really stood out to me because people typically make resolutions to change themselves. So like, you know, going to the gym or studying more and getting better grades. But I like that you brought up that resolution is returning to ourselves instead of changing who we are. Like, why do you think this? Why do you think it's important to return to ourselves? Yeah. So when I was originally like contemplating this prompt, my brain was going a lot between the differences of solution and resolution. And to me, solution felt more surface level and resolution felt really personal. And my brain did go to like New Year's resolutions, right? That's something we've all experienced. We want to change. We've also all experienced them being short-lived. And I feel like the things that really stick with us are the things that are in our core. And to me, especially in the context of climate, it is really about returning because I'm a bit of a spiritual person. I believe we are all part of the earth. We're from the earth. And I think it's really crucial to just recognize that like natural part of all of us and sort of come home to it in order to make a real change. I don't think change is something that can be forced. And I think, yeah, it's more just about coming home to yourself. Yeah, so how does this viewpoint of returning to ourselves influence just your general life resolutions and goals? I have had kind of a crazy path getting to my <laughs> field of science communication and environmental studies. And when I first came to college, it was like I was going to do seven majors and it was going to be <laughs> journalism and STEM. And it was very much about what it was going to look like on paper. I feel like, and that can be easy to get caught up with in the world of communications, right? We're all trying to build our resume and look at how many things I've talked about. But when you come to talking about the earth, like 
you have to do that from an authentic point, I think. And it has to be deeper than just how many articles can I put out and can I cover this press release? While that's important, I think this is an issue that really requires emotion and you can't talk about it without it. And so for me, like it was a lot about returning to my childhood connection with nature. Like I said, I grew up in a small town. I don't come from a lot of money. So like if I wanted to go out, I would go to the river, like run around in the field behind my house. And I think really returning to that has influenced a lot of my goals now. And I want to share that feeling and make the outdoors accessible to everybody and help like preserve that experience that we can all have. Because I think we all have a right to be our natural selves outdoors. I definitely agree. I think it's it's easy to get caught up in like the human component of life and sitting inside and studying all day. And it is so important to get outside. I think people, a lot of people can find peace from just being outside in nature instead of, you know, working hard to achieve some goal that eventually will make them happy. Definitely. I feel like our attention span is just, it's being pulled constantly of all the information that we take in, especially as students. And it's really important to just silence that and Mm -hmm. just connect with yourself outside for me is like the best way to do it. And then you're in a better mindset to reach those goals. Yeah. And I also think one thing about being outside is it feeds our curiosity. I guess at least when I know when I'm outside, I'm always thinking, what species is that? What kind of bird just flew by? Why is the bird here right now when it's winter? A lot of different questions that you can ask. And I think that curiosity is very important. And I I see that reflected in your piece. Like you mentioned, you know, a lot of people don't know about the rusty patch bubble bee. And we should be curious about these mm. these species that are dealing with their own struggles when we don't even notice them. It doesn't seem like a big deal to someone who doesn't know about the rusty patch bumblebee, but why does being curious about that one nest matter? Right. So I think I draw a lot of inspiration when I think about these concepts from Robin Walkimer, um, who is an author, environment author, most people know. Um, And she says in the world of climate change and everything, there's so many ways to search for solutions and to feel like you're making a difference. And the most impactful one for her and in her culture is just knowing the names of the things around you. And I think that's really powerful. And as I sort of mentioned in my essay, the ecological impacts of the one nest might not matter to you. It would matter to a scientist. And from a (laughs) biodiversity perspective, it is important But if you know that and then you get inspired to like grow a certain pollinator that they need and that helps something else and that helps something else. And then you're writing this essay, I think, was like the end of my piece. And it can be such a chain reaction that starts with just being curious about one thing that can lead you to something that you do connect with more. And so I think maybe it's not the rusty patch bumblebee for you, but just asking those questions and getting to know the species around you can lead you down some wonderful paths. and recognizing their diversity and your connections to each other, which applies to everything in your life, not just ecosystems and nature. So what do you think your role as a future and current, because you work at the Daily Cardinal, um, (laughs) science communicator is in fostering that curiosity in people? Yeah, so I work at sort of an interesting interface of science communication. I I work at the Daily Cardinal, and I work for some other media corporations. I've had a lot of experience, but I also work in eco-art and eco-poetry. And I think my role as I graduate out of college will really be 
helping foster those fields and bring that human connection and emotion into the world of science as we communicate about things like climate change, because the science is there and it's been there, but not everybody quite believes it or it's not moving everyone to action in the way it maybe should. And I think a big part of that is the lack of the human connection and the emotion. So I'm really excited to get out into the world and try to remind people how to feel and why we should care um, and work in those sort of artistic mediums to come at it from a new angle. Yeah, that was really interesting because you said that the human connection is important when communicating science to others. That reminded me of this year's Go Big Read book called How Minds Change. And in that book, they talk about how everyone has facts that they can use to back up whatever arguments it is. But what the author found is that one of the most compelling I guess not even really an argument, but just is connecting with the person and seeing eye to eye and not shouting facts at one another because facts don't change minds. It's emotion and it's the connection with the person that you're talking to. And I I really think that's important. And I'm glad that you brought that up. Exactly. Yeah, there's um, an amazing professor here, Nan Lee, in my Department of Science Communication, and she does work bridging the divides over climate change using art and sort of connecting to people's emotions like that. And she actually has like backed research like that that can make a difference and it's changing people's attitudes. And I think that's so amazing. (laughs) And for me, like knowing the biology of the things around me is just a form of art. And I think it really starts with that to build that connection beyond the facts. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I appreciated about your piece was that you celebrate the little win of one nest being found. It's you know, it's not like you wrote this essay about the species as a whole came back. It's you you were just excited about that one nest that was found, which is a big deal, but it is a little win. It's they're still endangered. And I think it's easy to fall into despair thinking that these species are endangered and you might not be able to save them. How how do you break free from that and instead just celebrate the little wins? Yeah, it's definitely a struggle. I've fallen victim to climate doom and just doom in general in the state of the world. And it is like shocking to look at the big scales and it's easy to fall into the trap. I think especially in this westernized view of the environment, we are really pushed to focus on our individualism. But that really contradicts if you look at the main contributors to where we're at, like our impact is so small compared to the amount of fossil fuels and things that big companies are putting out. And that can feel really despairing or that can feel really liberating. And I try to choose to look at it the second way. And it sucks that they are still endangered. (laughs) And that is heartbreaking that they are still endangered. But if you don't celebrate the little things, what are you going to celebrate? Like, I don't think one person is necessarily going to have the power to change the world or save the whole species, but it takes all these individuals to add up. And that's how we save a species is by everyone celebrating their own little wins. And so I really try to focus on that, but it is hard and I do fall into the trap. But I recently did a painting of some sandhill cranes and I cut out some newspaper pieces from the article that they were with. And it says something along the lines of life is complicated But look at this. This is happening to being belonging. Beautiful. That is beautiful. And it's a picture of three cranes flying together. And I feel like, you know, you just have to be mindful of those things. And suddenly, if you start to see the world through that lens, they'll add up. And that's all you'll see because you're choosing not to focus on the big 
negative scales that are out of your control anyways. Yeah, that's very inspiring. Um, <laughs> I've struggled with climate doom as well as I think everyone does. It was it was inspiring to read your piece and just for a moment to be excited about one win instead of thinking about the overall threat of climate change. And, you know, it was right. a good break. Right. I think it's so vital to recognize that climate change is a large scale issue. But I think it's important to separate that and set time for yourself to pressure those large companies and to do collective action and then also have your own practice of gratitude and reconnecting to the earth. I think those two things can coexist. One thing at the office that we say a lot is sustaining the sustainers. You know, we don't want to be burnt out from working hard and trying to make change in in our world. And there is time for both. There is time for rest and there is time for gratitude, but there's also time for work and time for us to try and make as much of a difference as we can. Definitely. Thank you so much for coming in today, Madeline. I enjoyed getting to know you and your written piece more. Congratulations on winning. Thank you. (laughs) Listeners, I hope you enjoyed these conversations with the winners. If you'd like to read the full essays we discussed today, you can find them on our website, sustainability.wisc.edu slash writing dash awards, or through the links through our Instagram page, which is at sustainuw. Thank you for listening and good luck on your path towards becoming resolute. Thanks to the Director of Sustainability at UW-Madison, Dr. Missy Nurgard, and to the Director of Sustainability Education and Research, Professor Andrea Hicks. Thanks also to the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies and to Facilities Planning and Management for supporting this podcast. The making of these episodes requires a lot of behind-the-scenes work from the entire intern podcast team, and we are so grateful for their efforts. Until next time, continue thinking about how to best sustain UW.